Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Take your Bibles, if you will, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. That's a book in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And for those of you watching this online and at Rossville, thank you so much for joining in today. Hey, I'm starting a new sermon series called Dealing with Being Down in the Dumps. Now, you say that phrase, down in the dumps, and that's just kind of one I heard uh, all my life growing up, you know, somebody was down in the dumps. I always thought it was associated with the garbage dump. Did anybody else think that? That's the only dump I knew, right, was a garbage dump. That's actually not where we get the phrase from. The phrase, a little bit of unusual origin, it, it's from the Dutch dump, D-O-M-P, and it meant a mental haze or dullness, or it could be from the German word dump, D-U-M-P-F, that meant uh, closed or heavy, oppressed or gloomy. It was used in Middle Ages to mean a mournful song or mournful dance. Even Shakespeare used the word dumps to mean out of sorts in your spirit. But the first recording we have uh, of being down in the dumps is in Francis Gross's book written in 1785 called The Classical Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. I love that. And he considered it a vulgar phrase. And dumps, down in the dumps, meant melancholy. Or it meant low-spirited. Some say it even is named after, though most don't believe this, a king of Egypt named Dumpos who died of melancholy. We're unsure of the origin, but it, I can affirm to you it has nothing to do with the garbage dump today, which is what I thought. But it means discouraged, disappointed, and down. Discouraged, disappointed, and down. It's easy to get discouraged, disappointed, and down. As a matter of fact, even just in America, right now, we, we are discouraged, disappointed, and down. How prevalent is depression and discouragement? Well, if you look around the world, here's what you'll discover, is that more than 264 million people worldwide suffer from Depression. Then, depression is a leading cause of disability in the world, and you'll also discover that 17.3 million adults have had at least one major depressive episode. But, but it even extends down to our kids. Adolescents aged 12 to 17 years old had the highest rate of major depressive disorders, followed by young adults. 25 and under have the highest age of depression and discouragement. And then you break it on down a little bit more, 25 million adults in the U.S. have been taking antidepressants for at least two years. That's a 60% increase in just a 10-year period of time. And then we also learned that from January to September 2020. Anybody remember January to September 2020 and uh, feels a lot like August 2021, to be honest with you, and 
315,220 people took the anxiety screening test. A 93% increase over 2019. So basically double the amount of people that took anxiety screens. uh, uh, And those who took anxiety screens were 534,784. That's a 62% increase over the number uh, uh, when you look at depression screens and then we tend there's this misnomer that depression is about kids and women but we we even see it among men in in recent years that the percentage of men in the United States who have experienced stress anxiety or depression in the past year as of April this year has been skyrocketing up to 82% of men say they have experienced uh, stress anxiety or depression in the past year. A lot of America, a lot of us are what we would call disappointed and down. Anxiety, frustration, depression, discouragement, however you want to call it this morning, has become a real part of our lives, especially in the situation we find ourselves in in the last 18 months. It's been a real part of life. And now look, what we get anxious about has changed over time, right? What we get discouraged about has changed over time, but it has never gone away. Often it's a specific set of circumstances in our lives that bring on high anxiety and discouragement. Often it's a specific time of disappointment that leads us to being down in, in the dumps. But, but here, here's what I tell you today. When you, and I want to talk about specifically being disappointed in life, but there are generally four or five things we wind up disappointed about. Uh, first of all, we wind up disappointed in a person, right? You've had that happen, right? Somebody in your life that you love, somebody that you cared for, somebody that you thought had your back, somebody you thought you could lean on, no matter what they did or how they did it, you wound up disappointed in them as a person. It may be a family member, a friend, it may be a, a, a co-worker, it may be a church member, I, I don't know, but it's somebody you thought you could depend on and now you're disappointed. It, it may be that you're disappointed, not just a person, but even in a situation, right? We find ourselves in those situations. A situation that we don't want to be in, a a situation that's bringing on discouragement, a situation that brings on disappointment in our life. We've all been in situations we didn't want to be in. Not only that, an outcome can bring disappointment. We we did X and we thought Y would happen. And when we did X and, and Y did not happen, the outcome of that brings disappointment into our lives. And finally, there are times we are even disappointed in God. I mean, there are times in our life, if we'll just admit it, that we are absolutely disappointed in the God we serve. And that disappointment can lead to anxiety, it can lead to discouragement, and it can lead to depression. There are times we feel as if God has let us down. There are times we feel as if others have let us down. There are times we feel as if the world has let us down. And there's some of you here today, you're watching online, wherever you may be, there's some of you here today that you are disappointed in life, in people, or even in God. How do we cope? with that how do we move forward how do we overcome that what i want to do today is tell you about a man in the old testament who was found himself in a disappointing situation his name was king david right you remember king david out of the bible right maybe you're not real familiar let me give you just a brief 
overview of David's life. David was a shepherd boy. I don't know why, but God likes shepherds, and God takes care of shepherds. God seems to call out shepherds in the Bible, and so God loved a shepherd's heart, and David was a little shepherd boy, the, the, the youngest of his family, really the, uh, uh, the little runt of the group, so to speak, and, and, but, but he had been an amazing shepherd boy. History, uh, David tells us that in his history, he had killed a lion, he'd killed a bear who came after his flock. He had the hand of God on him at an early age and Saul Samuel came along at one time and he anointed David king of Israel when he was just a little boy and I guess it was a cute day and if you read the Bible everybody kind of ignored it after that but here you've got this young teenage boy who's a shepherd kind of the run of the family and yet he's been anointed king and then everybody just goes on with life like it didn't happen but then you have the story, right? You remember, if I ask anybody, tell me the one thing about David you remember, what do you remember? David and Goliath. David, who was just a messenger boy to the battlefield. David, who was literally be bringing Cheez-Its to the front line to feed his brothers. David took a sling and a stone and in front of both armies killed that giant Goliath, took his took his own sword, Goliath's own sword, and cut his head off and won the battle. He wound up in the, in the service of King Saul at the time. That, that didn't go really well for David. It, David did everything right. God's hand was on David. But the Bible tells us they sang a song about Saul and David while David was still this young boy serving King Saul. And the song went something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. You can imagine that did not set well with an insecure leader named Saul. But God's hand was so on David in those battles that he fought over and over and over again there in the Old Testament. I, I saw this verse the other day. I, I saw it for the fir very first time, and I, I've adopted it in my own prayer life. And the Bible says that victory followed David wherever he went. What, what an absolutely phenomenal line in the Old Testament that victory followed David wherever he went. And so victory so followed David wherever he went that we find King David who now is winning all the battles and Saul eventually dies in battle. And through a process, David becomes king over all of Israel, all of Israel. And God promised him that his posterity would forever sit on the throne of Israel. And then we hear this in Acts 13. Here's what it says. After removing Saul, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. David, a man after my own heart. I didn't say that. A preacher didn't say that. God said that David was a man after his own heart. I'm, I'm be honest. Man, if you were looking at David's Instagram, it was all good, man. Everything in David's Instagram. You talk about an influencer. David could have been cooking eggs, and man, millions of people would have watched it and followed it and went and cooked eggs. I mean, everything about David was victory. There was not a crack in his armor. There was not a frown on, on his face. There was not a problem to be seen until, until we get to this story in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And victory has followed David everywhere he has gone. 
until we get to 1 Chronicles 13 and he finds himself dealing with the demon of disappointment. So would you stand with me as we honor God's word by reading it? If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen um, uh, this morning. But look in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and we're going to read the whole chapter. It's short. The Bible says this, David consulted with all his leaders, the commanders of hundreds and of thousands. Then he said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if this is from the Lord our God, let us spread out and send the message to the rest of our relatives and all the districts of Israel, including the priests and Levites and their cities with pasture lands, that they should gather together with us. Then let us bring back the ark of our God, for we did not inquire of him in Saul's day. Since the proposal seemed right to all the people, the whole assembly agreed to do it. So David assembled all Israel from Shahor of Egypt to the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kareth Jerim. David and all Israel went to Bala, that is Kareth Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to take it from there, the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord who is enthroned between the cherubim. And at Abinadab's house, they set the ark of God on a new cart. Uzzah and that looks like a how to me uh, regarding the cart. Verse 8. David and all Israel were dancing with their might before God with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines, cymbals and trumpets. When they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to hold the ark because the oxen had stumbled. And then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him dead because he had reached out to the ark. So he died there in the presence of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named the place outburst against Uzzah as it's still named today. David feared God that day and said, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? So David did not bring the ark of God home to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of God remained with Obed-Edom's family in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his family and all that he had. Thank you. You may be seated. David was extremely disappointed in this story. So what I want to do is just walk you through the story and I'm going to make three quick observations at the end of it. But let me, let me tell you the story. We find the story starting here in verses three through five that the, uh, let's, David said, let's bring back the ark of our God for we did not inquire of him in Saul's day. So David assembled all Israel from the Shahor of Egypt to the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kareth Jaren. And so David, uh, the Bible says that he goes out to bring back the ark of God. Now, what is the ark of God? That is a, an artist's representation, the closest we can get to the ark of God. Now, what is the significance of the ark of God? And I won't get into the detail about how it's been lost or has been carried away. Just suffice it to say, the ark of God was not with the children of Israel. And you say, well, why does it need to be? What's the big deal? What was in the ark of God? Well, we find three things in the ark of God. Number one was Aaron's rod that budded. You, you remember in the Old Testament when, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, that Aaron was Moses' brother and he was the first priest chosen by God. And Aaron had this simple walking stick. It's all we'd call it was a walking stick that God used it to perform miracles. As a matter of fact, that walking stick was used in the majority of the 10 plagues and miracles that God sent on the land of Egypt. It was Aaron's rod. But once there was some complaining and some grumbling and rebelling going on uh, against Moses. 
And so God said, do this. He said, I want everybody, every leader to bring a rod and, and we're going to put it in a certain place. And in the morning, the rod that buds has flowers on it. That will be the leader I've chosen. So all these leaders who were complaining and grumbling, they, they brought it and set it uh, in a certain place. And they set Aaron's rod there, which represented Moses' leadership. And the next morning when they opened up the tent to see which rod had budded, not only had Moses' rod budded, it had budded and it had flowers on it and this dead stick had almonds growing on it overnight, Aaron's rod that budded. Hebrews 9 uh, verse 4 tells us this, that Aaron's rod remained in the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony of God's choice of Moses to lead God's people. It was also a reminder that God does not put up with rebellion against his plan or his person that he's called to lead his people. And so this rod that budded, this rod of the miracles, it was in the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was a jar of manna. You remember what manna is, right? It was the, when Israel was hungry leaving Egypt, it was the food that rained down from heaven. It was the, it was the um, angel bread that rained down from heaven and would cover the dew uh, of the ground and they could harvest it six days a week, but you can never store it. Remember that? You, you couldn't put it in a jar because if you, if you tried to keep it overnight, it would spoil and rank and get worms and maggots in it. And, and you, every single day you had to go out and gather it, except on the day before the Sabbath. And the day before the Sabbath, you'd have to get enough for two days because God didn't want you, want you working on the Sabbath. And, and I know the question always becomes, well, why didn't they just turn it into a manna bread factory? Why did, didn't they make manna? Because God didn't want want them to store any man up. God wanted them to understand, the same wants us to understand, that uh, we are to provide, we are to depend upon him for our daily provision, knowing he'll provide. But when they built the ark, they'd taken one jar of man at God's request and they'd set it inside the ark. But not only that, there was Aaron's rod that budded, there was a jar of manna. There were two tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. Remember, go back to Moses. You, you, remember the, you remember the Ten Commandments, right? What was the neat thing about the Ten Commandments? The neat thing about the Ten Commandments is they had been carved by the finger of God. I mean, God himself had literally touched these two tablets where he had written the Ten Commandments. And so you find in this Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod that budded, a jar of manna, and the two tablets that God himself had actually touched with his own finger. It was an, it was an, it was an amazing, amazing piece of history. But more than all of that, it represented this, the presence of God. More than all of that, 
The Ark of the Covenant to the children of Israel had always meant the presence of God. When the, pre- when the Ark was in their midst, the presence of God was in their midst. When the Ark was in their midst, the favor of God was in their midst. When the Ark was in their midst, the blessings of God was in their midst. And so David has said, hey, we've not had the presence of God uh, since I've been king. We've not had the favor and blessing of God on Israel since I've been king. Let's go back and get the Ark and let's bring it into the presence of God. And so here's what David did in verse number one. The Bible says David consulted with all his leaders, the commanders of hundreds and the commanders of thousands. Now here's what David did. David, if we go back a verse to verse one, David didn't ask God about his plan. David asked people about his plan. Here's the issue with that. David, throughout his whole life, has asked God for guidance. In this one time, David does not ask God for guidance. And so then you move on, you get to verse number seven, and the Bible says that at Abinadab's house, they sat the ark of God on a new cart, and they put two people to guide the cart, Uzzah, and I I see that, and I think Ohio, but I know it's Ohio, but forgive me if I got college football on my mind, and so Ohio, and they're guarding, guarding the cart. Now, I want you to make a mental note right here. God had a specific way he wanted the ark transported. It had been spelled out clearly. David knew it. It was in the writing. He wanted a particular people carrying it a particular way. No oxen were supposed to be used, and it was to never, ever be touched. Never. You know that from Raiders of the Lost Ark, don't you? You should never, ever touch the ark. Bad things happen. It can never be touched, can't be carried by oxen. A certain group of people, the Levites, were supposed to carry the ark. David does absolutely none of that. And let me tell you what David's doing. David is carrying the ark nicely, but he's not carrying it correctly. We'd look at David and we would say, well, he had good intentions. God didn't care about good intentions. God cared about obedience. And so David's doing it nicely, but he's doing it the wrong way. But man, it all starts out great. By the way, when you're doing something wrong, doesn't it always start out great, you know? The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, right? Like, you, you, you do something wrong, man, it always starts out great. It's how it ends that you have to keep in mind. And so the celebration is on. The Bible tells us that there is music and there is dancing and there's instruments. I mean, it's a big band show production going on right here. And it, the house is coming down. And look, you see it. They were dancing with all their might before the Lord. Songs with lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. I mean, you think it's loud in our church service. We, we, we got to add some instruments, man. We got to get some tambourines and cymbals and trumpets going on in the house of the Lord. They were absolutely throwing down. And then tragedy struck, verses 9 and 10. When they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah, remember Uzzah, he was guarding the cart, reached out to hold the ark because the oxen had stumbled. So, so get the picture, they're, they're, they're going on a threshing floor, which would have been a rough patch of ground, and as they're going over it, the oxen and the cart kind of stumble, and it looks like the ark is about to fall off of the cart, and so Uzzah, David has planted him here for this very reason. Apparently, Uzzah is there, and he doesn't want the ark of God to fall, and so Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark. 
And what have we learned from Raiders of the Lost Ark? You shall not, what? Touch it. And he died immediately. He was trying to do the right thing the wrong way, but nevertheless, he violated the explicit command of God, and it cost Uzzah his life. And we see David going into this first major disappointment, depression episode in his life where he said, David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah. I'll show you the word in a minute, but as it is still named today, still named today. Now, I don't know when this was written, but a long time after that, still calling it that. David feared God that day and said, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? We get to verses 11 and 12. David is full of discouragement. David is full of disappointment. He's angry at God. As a matter of fact, he's given up on God and he's gone home to wallow in his misery, to wallow in his anxiety, to wallow in his anger and his disappointment. And David is absolutely disappointed in three things. He is disappointed in the situation. Why? Because an innocent person has died under his leadership. He's disappointed in an outcome because David went to get the the ark and the ark did not get back because you can imagine David has got hundreds and thousands of people who are there celebrating this ark coming back to uh, the capital and it doesn't make it there and David looks like a fool and David looks like a weak leader and David looks like an idiot and so here is David who he's disappointed in the situation an innocent man's died he's disappointed in the outcome the ark didn't make it home and we know he's disappointed in God He's angry and he's discouraged at God because we know that by why he named, by what he named the place. He named it. Basically, I'm mad at God. That's what he named the city or, or the place where he left it. Like, you get there and you can feel his anxiety. You can understand his hurt and his disappointment. So I want you to pause and think about your own life because we've been there so many times as well. I mean, if we'll be honest, we don't like to say it, but we've been disappointed in situation in our lives and outcome in our lives. And we have absolutely been disappointed in God in our lives because we thought God would do something differently in our lives. And so I want to take this story just now, David's situation, and tell you what we need to know about how we can deal with our own disappointment. Let me show you three things we learned from this. Number one is this, when you're disappointed and down, sometimes we make our own anxiety get right and move on. That's, that's a little hard to hear. It was a little hard to write, as a matter of fact. But it, but it can't be overlooked that, listen, David created this whole situation that caused his disappointment. This is a creation of David. He did it to himself. He created this whole situation. Now, he's blaming it all on God, but it's 100% on David. Listen, David did not ask about moving the ark. He didn't ask God. He did not pray about moving the ark. He went against the command of God on how to move the ark. The situation he is in, he made the situation. Now, two chapters from now, we don't have time to go there. He fixes it. He goes back and does what he should have done from the beginning. He got the right people to carry it the way God instructed, and everything worked out fine. He had to swallow some pride. He had to admit the failure. He had to quit complaining. He had to get over his angry. Anger. He had to get over his bitterness. And when he did all of that, every single thing worked out. 
Can I tell you this morning that sometimes we are mad at God and we're disappointed at God when really God has not done anything to us. We are in a mess of our own making. Can you say, oh me, right there? Right? Half the time when we're mad at God, half the time when we're disappointed in life, we put ourselves, we start a woe is me campaign and we blame it on God when really we've done it to ourselves. The other day I was having one of those days. You ever just have one of those days? I was just having a day. And, and it's usually, you ever had one of those days when you, when you bite like the side of your lip like five times in a day? You ever have, I was having a similar day to that, except it was with, uh, I was just, I was clumsy. It started off that morning, the wee hours of the morning with a cup of coffee. I had it sitting on my desk and I'd forgot to put the lid. I have a lid on, on my uh, cup and I forgot to put the lid on my cup. And I was at my desk and I reached to grab one of my devotionals I read in the morning and I hit that cup of coffee and I knocked it all over my desk. Computer, iPad, books, coffee, hot boiling coffee went everywhere. I was pretty frustrated, but I was doing my devotion, so I didn't cuss at that moment, you know, not that I would have anyway, not that I would have, not that I would have, but I'm saying, no, I didn't, I'm letting you know I didn't. I cleaned it all up, and I thought, well, that's a bad way to start the day, and it was an office day, I was coming to the office that day, and when I come to the office, I always swing by Starbucks there in East Ridge, and I'd gone to Starbucks in East Ridge, and um, uh, I don't know why Starbucks can make uh, such good coffee and have billions of dollars at their disposal, but they can't make a lid that fits on top of something that they hand you. And so they had handed me this lid of this large venti coffee I'd gotten, and it was in my car, and I was just starting down the road, and I reached over and I grabbed it, kind of, I didn't grab the lid, I grabbed the, underneath the lid, but, but the, they didn't have the cup on, the lid on exactly as tight as it should be. One thing leads to another, part Starbucks fault, the lawsuit will say it's all Starbucks fault, but, but part Starbucks fault, part my fault, I, I picked it up, the lid popped off, when the lid popped off, I hit the side trying to drop back in, and I dumped another cup of coffee, Except I dumped it this way on top of myself. Second time. I make it through the day. I go home at night. I'm fixing me a Diet Coke. Going to sit in the recliner for a few minutes. And I'll be dog. I did it again. <laughs> I knocked an entire not in a can, I poured it in a cup with that fancy ice machine my wife got me two or three years ago, and uh, it makes like sonic ice, and, and I'd, I'd, I'd knock the Diet Coke over, and I just want to be honest with you, when I did it that morning, I was angry. When I did it at Starbucks, I was angrier. When I dadgum did it at night, I lost a little bit of control. I was angry, I was disappointed, I was embarrassed, and I did what any reasonable person in that situation would do. I punched something and burned my house down around it. <laughs> I did punch something, I did stop short. Sherry stopped me when I got the matches in my hand, and so um, I was so angry. But it was all on me. I got frustrated wanted to burn the house down, but it, it was all on me. It was all my fault. All I needed to do was calm down, take a breath, and own it. Can I tell you, sometimes your disappointment is your own dilemma. And can I tell you what you need to do? 
You need to let go of some pride and finally admit, hey, this is my mistake. We get in such a mess sometimes in life and we absolutely dug our own hole. We drove our own car. We went off that cliff with our eyes wide open and we absolutely make a mistake. And what it takes first and foremost is for us to let go of some of our pride and just be willing to admit, I did it. It's my fault. God, I don't have any right to be disappointed in you. You didn't put me in this mess. David didn't have any right to be disappointed in God. God didn't do it. David did. And then you quit complaining about it. Because when we complain, we throw shade at God. Not our situation. Complaining is always taken personally by God, no matter what you're complaining about. And then we need to search out and find forgiveness for the mistake, for the anger, and for the bitterness. Because that's what develops in our lives. That anger, that bitterness that develops because of disappointment. And then to the best of our ability, we move on and fix the situation. And we say, God, you know what? That one's on me. I mean, sometimes it's true. We absolutely make our own anxiety. So get right and move on. I'll show you the second thing to do. And I, I have to preach a little faster. Number two, look for the right, right way. Look for the right, right way. Here's what David was trying to do. David was trying to do the right thing, but he was doing it the wrong way. God had prescribed exactly how he was supposed to do it, and he ignored God. Hear me. He ignored God, and he paid the consequences for ignoring God. Now, let me tell you, there are four ways you can do something, all right? Number one, there is the wrong thing the wrong way. That's called sin. Whenever you're doing something you should not be doing it, and you're doing it in a way that it should not be done, that is absolutely sin in a Christian's life. And so when you do the wrong thing the wrong way, that's sin. We recognize what that is. However, you can do the wrong thing the right way, and that's failure. You say, well, preacher, how can I do the wrong thing the right way? I'll give you an easy example. Your car's not running correctly, and you go out, and you look at your car, and you say, man, my car's not running correctly. I'm going to change the spark plugs in my car. And then you change the spark plugs in your car. It is the best spark plug changing that has ever taken place in the history of a car. Your spark plugs are operating just as, as smoothly as they should be. And you, you try to drive your car down the road. And you, you know what? You know what you find out? It wasn't the spark plugs. You, you did the wrong thing. But you did it the right way. But you wind up in failure. Number three. You do the right thing the wrong way, and you wind up disappointed and frustrated. This is what David did. David did the right thing the wrong way, but because he did the right thing the wrong way, he wound up disappointed and frustrated with life. And so that leads us to number four. You can do the right thing the right way, and that leads to success. That's the sweet spot of life, the right thing, the right way. See, there is a right way to make your marriage work. If you do the right thing the right way, you'll have success. There's a right way to operate your family. There's a right way to parent. There's a right way to be uh, an employee or to work. There's a right way for the Christian life. There's a right way to talk and a right way to walk and a right way to live. And when you do the right thing the right way, that is where you find success, that is where you find find happiness that is where you find peace in just a couple of chapters David's going to go back and fix it all he's going to do the right thing the right way and it's absolutely 100 successful 
the right thing the right way. But David got stuck here. He's doing the right thing the wrong way. Right? You, you've done that as a parent. How many of you are parents? Let me say your hand. You, you're a parent? All right, you've done this. You've done this, right? If you'll admit it. You have absolutely, as a parent, been 100% right. And you're going to confront your kids about something. And it gets sideways on you because it doesn't happen the way you think. You expect, especially in the early days, you expect pure humility from them, apologies, and acceptance of whatever punishment you're laying down. And if you, if you confront your kids a hundred times, that'll happen exactly zero times. No kid's ever said in the history of kids, well, Dad, you're right. I was so wrong in doing that. I shouldn't have done it. Whatever punishment you hand me will be far less than what I deserve. By the way, if you're a teenager, if you'd do that, the shock of that would probably cause them to not even give out any punishment. But when your kid kind of comes at you with a rebellious attitude and you're hoping for more, what winds up happening? You wind up losing control. You wind up raising your voice. You wind up doing a little bit of yelling and a little bit of screaming. So, Dad, that you're, you're, and it works both ways, but so, Dad, the wife has to come in and say to you, what are you doing? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm just letting them have it. She said, go in there and apologize to the kids right now. Well, wait a minute, time out. They owe me an apology. Here's what happened. You did the right thing, but you did it the wrong way. And now you're going to wind up in disappointment. And so here's what David had to do. He had to find the right, right way to live. How do you deal with disappointment and stay out of the dumps? You evaluate your source of disappointment and make sure you're living the right, right way. Number three, I'm finished. I got to move quickly. Number three, don't let a temporary setback become a permanent reality. And this is really where I want to spend all my time and I'm not going to have much. David, in his disappointment, bitterness, and anger, did something he should not have done. He set up a landmark to commemorate his setback. He literally named the spot where the disappointment happened, outburst against Uzzah, or Perez Uzzah in the Hebrew. He named it. Like he had failure and disappointment, and he set up a permanent, permanent sign so that the writer of 1 Chronicles said, hey, we still call that today. David won't let us change the name of it. It's still called Outburst Against Uzzah. It's like David's wagging his finger in God's face and said, you know what? I'm never, ever going to forget this disappointment. This disappointment. And his intentions were to let this temporary setback that by the way he fixes in two chapters but he was going to let this temporary setback become a permanent reality and when you do that you are destined to go deeper into disappointment here's here's what happens when you do that you become passive instead of active and you start talking about what has happened to you and when you start talking about what has happened to you you become the victim instead of the victor which jesus has given us victory in all things get this I love this. You stop where you ought to pause. Too many people disappointed in life have stopped where they should have paused in life. Paused and gotten their heart right with God. Paused and gotten closer to God. But instead you stopped and dug in with anger and disappointment. Next, they've pouted instead of prayed. Operate from feelings 
instead of faith. And if you aren't careful, you'll commemorate the disappointment and you won't move on in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you wind up, disap- you wind up defined by your failure. You wind up controlled by your frustration and you wind up stuck in your disappointment and you wind up down in the dumps. And so listen, do not let a temporary setback become a permanent reality. Too many Christians in life, the reason we stay discouraged, the reason we're constantly disappointed is that somewhere along the line, we had a disappointment. Look, it may have been caused by us, It may have been a natural occurrence about life, but we've parked it, set up a sign, made it permanent, and it's all we can talk about. We can't get over it. And we've let a temporary setback become a permanent, permanent reality. And it's killing us. It's wearing you out. And it's eating you up from the inside. And so here's what we learn from David. Sometimes we make our own anxiety, fix it, move on. Sometimes it's us. We just need to do the right, right thing. And sometimes, hey, pull up that sign that you're commemorating that failure, that disappointment, and move on in the power of the Holy Spirit. Close your Bibles and I'm finished. I've got to tell you a story and I'm finished. 1953, somebody at Swanson's Foods made a huge mistake. Now, when I say huge mistake, I mean absolutely huge mistake, 1953. Somebody ordered 260 tons too much turkey. 260 tons, tons, tons. Too much turkey. We're we're talking about a 10-pound bird here. You add all that up, that's a bunch of birds, 260 tons too much. And it was sitting in refrigerator cars about to go bad because they just couldn't keep running the refrigerator cars and keep it fresh. And a guy named Jerry Thomas, who was a Swanson sales rep, came up with an idea. TVs had just become popular. As a matter of fact, 1953, a whopping 64% of homes... (laughs) Owned, at least, owned one television. Nobody had two, but they owned one television. Now, about 64% of homes own four televisions. But in 1953, 64% of homes owned one television. And Jerry Thomas had an idea. Why not make it a meal that would be easy to cook and watch TV together as a family? That you could put it in a metal tray. Remember 1953, no microwaves? You talk about the good old days all you want. I don't want anything to do with the good old days. I like them right now. No microwaves. They put them in metal trays, and you just took the lid off and popped it in the oven, and guess what was born? Voila. The Swanson TV dinner. And notice, quick frozen turkey dinner. It doesn't say because it's about to all go bad, but that's really what it means. Quick frozen. We froze 260 tons in a hurry. In uh, that first year, first year, they sold 10 million TV turkey, 10 million turkey TV dinners. The second year, that turkey might have been a little old, I don't know, but 10 million. I love that story because no pity party, no permanent reality, 
Jerry Thomas, the Swanson sales rep, said, you know what? We made a mistake. Let's deal with the mistake and move on and not get down in the dumps. Would you stand with me? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Pastor Joel, thank you so much for that encouraging message and the reminder that, man, there are those times in our lives when we get down in the dumps and we get discouraged and sometimes we don't even know why. And it's important for us to remember um, that sometimes when we're discouraged, it's of our own making. And maybe we're trying to do the right thing like King David was, but we're going about it the wrong way. And we need to learn to follow God's plan for our life and to be obedient to those things that we know He has called us to do. And uh, when you get discouraged, it's important to remember, man, don't don't stay there. Uh, Seek out a godly friend or a godly family member who can help encourage you and bring you out of the despair that you're in so that you can turn a time of discouragement into a time of spiritual growth um, where you learn how to help others. And um, man, it seems like now is a discouraging time in our world. There's so so much going on, and especially with COVID-19 and um, all the people that are struggling with, with health issues. And so um, don't, don't allow Satan to discourage you during this time, but be a light. Um, and maybe you're watching this morning and you're listening and you're thinking, man, um, I, I don't really have the hope out of discouragement. That begins with you having a relationship with Jesus. It begins with you understanding that you're a sinner. There's absolutely nothing you can do to fix your problem with sin. Sin separates us from God, and God sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. We've got to be willing to admit that we're sinners. We've got to believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, We believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth, and we will be saved. And if you've never done that this morning, what a perfect opportunity for you to turn your heart and life over to Christ. It begins with you telling God this, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin. I ask you to come into my heart, take away my sin, be my savior. Lord, I give my life to you in Jesus name if you prayed that prayer this morning for the very first time we could not be more excited for you we want to connect with you and we want to help you take those first steps on your faith journey with Jesus we'd like to send you a book called welcome to the family and um, in order for us to be able to do that if you would um, we've just dropped a link in the chat box that says I commit my life to Christ if you'll click on that link Um, You'll be asked a few questions and um, your name, your email address, and your phone number. And that that way we can connect with you and um, help you take next steps because you don't need to be on this faith journey alone. Hey, it's been awesome to be together um, doing church virtually this morning. I'm so glad that you joined us and I can't wait to see you next week. God bless you. Have a great week. 
We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.